I'm going to start with a couple of points, and then we're going to go to, I think I told you all Matthew, Matthew 18. Matthew 18. I'm going to try my best to make it with my voice, but y'all just have a little grace on me. So let me start with this. Uh, Damon Thompson said this years ago, and it's been one of my kind of life quotes, but it's this. One generation's compromise will be the next generation's captivity. One generation's compromise will be the next generation's captivity. What you and I allow to affect our relationship with God will be what defines the next generation's, plural, relationship with God. Just one more time. What you and I allow to affect, even if it's minimal, what we allow to affect our relationship with God will be, to be clear, what defines the next generation's relationship with God. So, just for example, apathy, apathy, a laziness kind of mentality toward God, in one generation will be, and we're seeing this right now, the next generation's rejection. I hate that sound on podcasts if people listen to that. I'm sorry. Apathy, apathy in one generation will be the next generation's rejection. That's what we're seeing right now. People are fleeing from the church. And it's because, and this isn't a shot, because this isn't an overarching thing, but it's definitely the majority. Because one generation had an apathetic heart towards the Lord. The generation that's now rising up is not just apathetic towards the Lord. It's, it's rejecting the Lord. You know what I'm saying? So what the, the, the small, minute things that we think are insignificant, that we think aren't that big of a deal, seep into our legacy and become that which completely defines how they view everything. The way I'll, the way I'll describe this is this. So we had this uh, condo collapse in Miami a few months ago. And I was, I was going back and reading kind of the... the um, the study that they did afterwards to see why it fell. And, uh, and, and while they were talking about this, um, it started all the way in the beginning where the builders, and don't directly quote me on this, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but anyway, where the builders were building these, um, these beams that were going to be the stabilization for the whole building. Okay? And, um, and as they were building them, there were supposed to be a certain measure, I think it was 24 inches of rebar, which is like metal bars within this concrete. Um, but to save money... They use 16-inch, okay, within the concrete. And you can't really see it because it's surrounded by concrete, you know what I'm saying? And um, on, <clears throat> on top of that, all of them are supposed to be weatherproofed because they're right there on the beach, and so salt water is just continually kind of like fuming into this building, okay? And, uh, and so there's all this weatherproofing and amount of weatherproofing that they're supposed to do that they did not do. They really skipped on. Um, and a study, I think it was like four or five years ago, found there was none left, okay? And so what eventually caused this building to collapse was over the years, different um, architects and different inspectors allowed one or two little things to kind of slide by. And over the years, one or two little things in one generation and then a the next generation sliding by became complete, literally death, for hundreds so, so had in the original builders, had they said, this is going to cost us a little more money, it's going to cost us a little more, but 
we're going to do everything that we are required to do to make sure this thing is stable, guess what? All those 90 people that passed away would still be here, and the building would still be standing. Okay? So we just saw this. So what we think is really insignificant, really insignificant, and it's really easy to do this when you're not married and you don't have kids yet. Because all y'all in the room, or the, most of you in the room, are going to be married and you're going to have kids at some point. Okay? Maybe not all, most. So what decisions that you make right now, and this isn't a workspace thing. We're coming out of this love. But the decisions that you make right now are going to determine how your kids and their kids and their kids view God. It's very, so, so one generation's compromise will be the next generation's captivity. However, I've said this for years. I kind of add this on there. One generation's pursuit of purity or orthodoxy in every way, shape, or form. One generation pursuing the little things right will be the next generation's freedom. So, so one generation's compromise will be the next generation's captivity, but one generation's holding of the standard will be the next generation's freedom. And so, misunderstood... <clears throat> I'm going to say this in the best way I can. Misunderstood experiences cause us to take control of our lives and mature. Misunderstood experience causes us to take control of our lives and to become mature. But maturity in the kingdom is not growing into control. Maturity in the kingdom is having the ability to get older in age but never cease being a kid. Okay? What do I mean by misunderstood experiences? What I mean is, is a lot of stuff, and, and this is me, um, I've walked through things in my life that I thought the Lord was being so mad in, so angry in, so letting me down in, that now I'm looking back on it saying, thank God I walked through that. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't be here today. I, apply, I was telling somebody this morning, I was, I was meeting with somebody, and I said, um, telling them my story and different things, and I, I, I applied, some of y'all know this, to go to Belmont, or Belmont in uh, Nashville, Big music university. And the reason I wanted to be in the songwriting program was because the, the year I was going into it, two years before that, Florida Georgia Line, the two guys, had graduated from that same program. So I was like, well, I mean, that's, that's one way to make it. And um, so I went through the whole process, was going to go in two weeks, two weeks before I was going to move to Nashville. I get a call from Belmont University, and they say, hey, so we rarely have this happen. All your financial aid fell through, so either you need to pay for it, the whole thing in full, and you can come, or you can't come, which I didn't have $150,000 laying around, and anybody who, let me, anybody who spends $150,000 on a songwriting degree, salah, okay? That's why I was about to do that. I didn't, I didn't have scholarships. I was about to just sell the whole thing, um, and so anyway, so I was so mad at the Lord. I was so mad. I mean, my dad will tell you. He's watching this right now. My dad, I went to my parents. I questioned God's existence because of that. Literally, I remember sitting in their bedroom saying, like, I don't even think I believe in God anymore. Well, he, he let me, this is my, I've been working hard for this. He let me down. So in response, I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to take control. I'm going to apply at the largest church in America. And I'm going to be a worship leader there. And I applied and I got the job. And for four years, I was a worship leader at one of the largest churches, the large, at that point, largest church in America. You know what I'm saying? And, and again, I wasn't in a bad place, but I was, I was at, at one point in that process so lost, I didn't even know I was lost. 
You know what I'm saying? That's what you know you lost when you're that lost. Um, when you think you're in a good place and on the inside, everything's just crumbling. But um, as the Lord transitioned me into this season in my family into starting this, I'm looking back on that season. I'm like, we, you guys would not be in this room. I would not be in this room had the Lord said, you're not going to Nashville. So, so I could have, and I did, let that misunderstood experience cause me to mature. And by mature, I mean I took all control and said, you tried, you failed, now I'm going to take over. I've always had this mentality in my life, and this is a bad mentality, but this is my mentality. My whole life has been, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Like, is anybody else like that? Like, especially when it comes to, it's like, I, I could let somebody else make coffee, or I could do it myself and know it's going to get done right. And um, thank God we have Kyle who makes it way better than me. But that's always been my mentality. So when the Lord, I thought, let me down in that season, my response was, good try, you failed, now let me show you how it's done. You know what I'm saying? And looking back, looking back, I misunderstood the love of God saying, I've got something way better for you than this. And so what we do, man, I can't figure out if I want to sit down or, or stand. What we do is we grow up, and by grow up, I mean we become mature. And by maturing, we take control. And by taking control, subconsciously, we know what we're doing. We'll never say this. But by taking control, it relinquishes the need to trust God. So if I don't have to trust God, I don't have to have faith for anything. And if I don't have to have faith for anything, nothing's in question because I know everything because I'm in control. You know what I'm saying? And we, and we, as a society, applaud that. Hey, man, man you need to grow up. How many, time, look, how many times have you heard that? Like, I hear that all the time still. You know, you know I mean, Jordan, she'll joke. You know, I'll be at Adventure um, sliding down the slides that only kids are supposed to slide down. And uh, they'd be like, hey, can we go over here? I'm like, no, let's go slide a few more times. But, <laughs> you know, and Jordan, like, joking, be like, Josh, you just need to grow up. And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't, I don't. You know, but that, that's that, that, like, man, we just you need to grow up. And what we say is, is you need to stop making decisions that are dumb. And when we say you need to stop, and some people do need to stop making dumb decisions. But, but what we really are saying when we say you need to stop making dumb decisions is we're saying you need to stop making decisions that, are, that have outcomes that you can't control. You know what I'm saying? And, and what, we're, what we're really doing on the ground level is we're making small compromises in the need to trust. But by doing that, it may not affect our relationship with the Lord in a way that we can see. But when our grandkids come up, that will define their relationship with the Lord. We see this because the Israelites leave Egypt and they question, why don't they have water? Them questioning the fact that they didn't have water down the road became, we can't take those giants. Let's all go back to Egypt. You know what I'm saying? So one tiny thing, we're thirsty. The Lord brought us out here to die. He didn't bring you out here to die. He gives them water. That one tiny insignificant thing became them going, spying out the land, coming back, and convincing the whole nation we can't do this. Do you, you see how this happens? And so what the Lord is calling us into right now is to take inventory, I believe, to take inventory of the little things before we go into a month like September. Like, what are, what are the little things 
that you or I have allowed to come into our relationship with God that is completely unnoticeable at this point, but that are seeds of what will grow and become something that affects the whole batch. Let, let, me, let me just read this. Let me just read this. Right. No, I need to stay on my notes. But I'm about to jump somewhere. In our society, we cheer one's ability to outgrow childlikeness as quickly as possible, to fall in line, to work, 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 to control our own destiny, to be of good behavior, and to stop being, quote, childish. And what I'm not talking about today is being immature. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about maturing in our childlikeness. And to be even more specific, what I'm really talking about is how we think. It's really what we're talking about, how we think. I got COVID tested this week, so I'm not sick. I'm not sick. I just lost my voice. Every time I sniff, I can just, I can just see something. It's like, wait a minute, you know. Um, children, let me, let me say this. Children trust easily because they don't determine whether or not they can trust based on experience. They've never had, they haven't had experiences. So children trust easily, not because of what they've been through. They trust simply their trust is simply determined by whether or not they can trust someone based on who they know they are. So my daughter and I don't trust, or my, my daughter doesn't trust Jordan and I because uh, we've just come through in a lot of situations because she hasn't been through that many situations. She trusts Jordan and I simply because we're her dad and mom. That's it. You know what I'm saying? We, if you, you know, the Lord says, hey, I, I need you to do this. And, and most of the time it's little things. Like, hey, I really need you to not go spend $150,000 on a songwriting degree. You know what I'm saying? It's like really, really easy things. I really need you not to invest your entire retirement on Dogecoin um, or whatever. But um, anyway, that's a millennial thing. But um, I guess it's, actually that's not even a millennial thing at this point. It's like younger than that. But, um, but what we have... What we have determined as far as our ability to trust God is we've said because we've been through this and this and this and this and this, we're not sure if we can trust him. You know what I'm saying? And even as grown-ups, like think about your parents. I don't know, like I have great parents, um, but maybe, maybe your relationship with your parents haven't been that great. And if you ask, if somebody asks you, why is your relationship with your parents not great? You would say, because this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. Right? So we process trust based on experiences as we get older. But kids don't have experiences. So kids trust simply based on the fact that they have a relationship with someone. That's it. You know what I'm saying? And so when Jesus, and I'm going to read this. Go to Matthew 18, and I'm going to read just a couple of verses, and then I'm going to skip to Matthew 19 and read a couple of verses. Matthew 18 and I'm going to, I think I'm going to just read verse 1 through 3. But y'all know how that goes. Matthew 18. Verse 1. Here we are. <clears throat> Excuse me. At the time, the disciples, let me, actually, let me back up, let me back up, let me back up. So, let me go to 17, verse 24. Let me start there, because there's some context here that, that we don't get if we start at 18. After they arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax approached Peter and asked, does your teacher pay the tax for the upkeep of the temple like the rest of us? 
okay? Now, Jesus was the temple, all right? Um, at that point, God was not in the Holy of Holies, hadn't been for centuries, okay? So it's really kind of interesting how this, this, this plays out. So does your teacher, talking about Jesus, pay the tax to upkeep the temple like the rest of us? Of course he does, Peter answered. When Peter walked into the house, and before he had a chance to speak to uh, Jesus, Jesus spoke up and said, Peter, I have a question for you. Jesus knows this whole thing is played out. He says, who pays tolls or taxes to a king? Now, I want you to hear this. Is tax collected from the king's own children or from his subjects? From his subjects, Peter answered. Jesus replied, that's right. The children get off free without paying taxes. But so that we don't offend them, go to the lake, throw out a hook. You're going to catch a fish. He's going to have the amount. Verse eight, or chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to ask Jesus, who is considered to be the greatest in heaven's kingdom realm? Verse 2, Jesus called a little one, so a kid, uh, to his side and said to them, learn this well. Now listen to what he says. Unless you dramatically change your way of thinking and become teachable and learn about heaven's kingdom realm with the wide-eyed wonder of a child, you will never be able to enter in. Whoever, verse 4, whoever continually humbles himself to become like this gentle child, the other Greek word could be lamb. But anyway, whoever humbles himself to become like this gentle child is the greatest one in, the, in heaven's kingdom realm. I'm going to stop right there. Okay, so Jesus tells Peter, who pays taxes to the king? Is it his kids or is it subjects? Peter says it's subjects, not the kids. And he says, you're right. So he pays the taxes. Now, this is massive because right after this, the disciples come to him and say, who's the greatest? Essentially what they're saying is, who are the king's kids you were just talking about? You know what I'm saying? And so all of this, all of this comes on the heels of Peter asking, who pays for the upkeep of the temple? He's, and he's talking after, had ju- after having just talked to a religious person that asked if they pay the taxes to the temple. Okay, so the religious spirit says, do y'all pay your dues to make sure this thing is upkept? Right? Y'all with me? And Peter says, yeah, of course. And Jesus says, Peter, let me ask you a question. Who pays for that to be upkept? Is it the king's kids or is it those who see themselves as slaves? And now I'm, I'm giving you my translation. Okay. And Peter says, the slaves. The subjects. And Jesus says, yes. And then Jesus, what does he do? He pays Peter's tax for him. In this, see, see if, you re, if you read this and just be like, man, that's really cool. Like a coin came out of a fish's mouth. Amazing. Move on. You'll miss everything. What's happening here is Jesus is saying, I'm making you a son of the king. Therefore, you're not going to pay this. I'm going to pay it on your behalf. Right after this, right after this, all the disciples come around having witnessed this, and they say, who's considered to be the greatest in heaven's kingdom realm? And Jesus pulls a kid to his side and says, unless you dramatically change how you think, remember everything that just happened to Peter, 
unless you dramatically change how you think and become teachable and learn about heaven's kingdom realm with the wide-eyed wonder of a child, you'll never be able to enter in. The greatest one is this one. Okay, so what he's saying? He's saying, if, unless you can become like you were before the hands of your experience and your life and society and the religious system placed their hands on you, before the hands of them touched you, unless you can become like you were in the beginning, you'll never enter this kingdom that can only be entered into by you being, what does he tell Nicodemus? Born again. Right? I said this Tuesday night. It's really interesting. Nicodemus, how many of y'all have seen The Chosen? It's really good. Go back and watch it. Um, I haven't seen season two, but season one was good. But Nicodemus is, is the, the top dog in the religious system. Top dog. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, sits down with him and says, how can I have eternal life? Religious dude. You know what I mean? And his head, he's thinking, you know, what, he said, what can I do? The exact words, what can I do to have eternal life? Tells everything you need to know about what Nicodemus is thinking. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't say, what can I say? He doesn't say, how can I think? He doesn't say, who can I become? He says, what can I do? Okay? So it's everything you need to know about how he's thinking. And Jesus looks at him and says, unless you're born again, you won't be in the kingdom. Now, we've talked about that with Jesus and, you know, birth at the cross and all that stuff. But anyway, what is he telling Nicodemus, though? He's saying, unless you can go back to the place before you knew everything, before you started thinking that your identity was in what you do, before you started seeing yourself as worthy because you have made it to a certain spot in society, unless you can get back to the place where you wide-eyed, fully in wonder, just trusted Abba, you'll never see the kingdom. And Nicodemus is saying, well, how on earth can I climb back into my mother? See, he's thinking about what I do. You know what I'm saying? He heard that and processed, oh, i got to climb back in my mother's womb. She's got to go through nine months, and I've got to be born again. You know what I'm saying? And Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. I'm, talk- I'm talking about what's here. Unless you change how you think and are in your mind born again from origin, that's the Aramaic is born from origin, born from originality, who you were before you ever took a breath. Unless you can become that again, you will never see this that comes by way of those who have been radically transformed to think like that again. This is why Jesus thought very differently. I believe it's because he never, he was born and he was raised. But the mentality of trust that he had in Abba never changed from the time he was a kid to the time he died. Never. Jesus never matured in the faith. He matured in his childlikeness which became maturity in the faith. Y'all with me? Okay. So he says that in Matthew 18. If you skip ahead to Matthew 19, because then he tells the parable of the lost lamb. Um, He talks about restoring broken relationships. He talks about forgiveness, 70 times 70, all that other stuff. If you skip ahead to Matthew 19, verse 14, this is what happens. Um, uh, Let me start at verse 13. Then they, the people, brought little children to Jesus. Okay, so this is right after he just said all this that I just told you. Next chapter over. They brought little children to Jesus so that he would lay his hands on them and bless them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded those who brought the children, saying, Don't bother him with this now. He's got better things to do, y'all. Go let somebody else lay hands on him. He's trying to, he's trying to fix the system. Jesus overheard them and said, 
I want little children to come to me, so never interfere with them when they want to come. For Listen to this. For heaven's kingdom realm is composed of beloved ones like these. And then he says this. Listen to this truth. No one will enter the kingdom realm of heaven unless he becomes like a child, like one of these. Then he laid his hands on every single one of them and left. Don't bother him with this. He's changing the system. He said, yeah, I know I'm changing the system. I'm changing the system by laying hands on all these. Theirs is the kingdom. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So, so what the Lord has brought us through in this season is he's reformed how we see love, right? He's taken us through a whole time of reforming how we see the love of God. And it's been unbelievable. It's been amazing. And I hope that we have at least that much more of a view of the love of God than we did back in May. It's been unbelievable. It's been unbelievable how we see other people. Let me say it like this. When it comes to being a child, Veda, we could be anywhere. And I mean anywhere around anybody. And y'all know the things that we do, okay? When you talk about like social justice, this goes even way beyond like race. This goes into like body types and backgrounds and styles in every way, shape, or form. Y'all know how we do. We'll walk through Walmart, and we'll look at somebody, and if somebody's with us, we'll be like, dear Lord, where did, you know, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Or, at least in our heads, we'll walk by people and be like, how on earth did you get out of the house looking like that? Or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Um, or, or, for me, this is something I struggle with. I'll be at Adventure, and there'll be a mom there with 12 kids, and she'll be over here. Where's my phone? She'll be sitting on a couch or whatever doing this on Facebook and all her kids will be running around like insane crazy people okay and so in my head I'm like either you can put the phone down or I'll fling it across this room but somebody's gonna be a dad or somebody's gonna be a mom and so what I normally end up doing is walking up to these kids saying like hey stop and then you know especially if they start doing they, like she'll be in line for a slide Mom be over there taking Snapchats, whatever. And Vado will be in line on the slide. 12 people will be in line. And they'll start cutting her. Do so you know what I mean? And, v- and Veda just lets them. She, I mean, she's so, she'll just be like, okay, like, go ahead. And she'll just stand to the side. And I, list, yesterday I was like, Veda, do not let them cut you. You know what I'm saying? And she's like, it's okay. Like, it's fine. I got time. And I was like, yeah. I mean, that's, I need to have that mindset. But um, just let them go. So, of course, I stepped up and I was like, hey, stop. And the, I mean, it's just like white, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and I look over, and of course, the mom's going to be standing. I'm like, if you would do this, I wouldn't have to, you know? But, but that's, that's what, you know what I mean? It's just this, this, this mentality of, A, we think we got it figured out, so I think I'm the best parent on earth, therefore, everybody else's way of parenting is wrong. You know what I'm saying? And whether or not that's the truth, you know, we could debate that. But the point is, is that that's how we view, especially when it comes to the Lord, so if you're a part of a denomination, you think every other denomination is wrong. Or if you're an American, you think every other country and every other democratic or whatever other kind of system is wrong. If you're a Democrat or Republican, you think the other side is wrong. And whether or not that's true, because I'm sure there are things that we believe other people are wrong in that are, they are legitimately wrong in. The point is, is that we have this ingrained mentality in us that we're this because of what we've done, and they are this because of what they have done. You know what I'm saying? Now, Veda, Veda, the way that she lives her life, she sees everybody the same. 
So we could be at the zoo and we could pass by somebody and me be having those thoughts and Veda will walk by them and she'll go, hi. Start having a conversation with them. I was avoiding them. You know what I'm saying? Especially in my past, not as much lately, but in the past. You know, I'd be avoiding them and she's sitting there having a conversation with them, telling them that she loves their hair. I mean, legit. We were in line at Aldi one day and, uh, and I could tell the cashier was just, like, really struggling just that day. If I worked at Aldi, I would absolutely be struggling as well. And, um, and so, but they blaze, have you ever noticed, does anybody shop at Aldi? They just blaze those that you put them down, and it's just like, boop, 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 $10 or whatever. And um, you can't even, have, you don't have got time to get your wallet out. They're already, you know, but um, so they're basically what they do. But we were at Aldi one day, and this, the, the cashier was um, just having a rough day. Like, you can just tell. And so I'm praying. I'm like, all right, Lord, like, you know, just, what, what word do I need to give or whatever? And Veda, in the, the shopping cart, we pull up, and she looks at her, and she literally says, she says, I love your hair. And I, I promise you, I kid you not, because Jordan was there too. I kid you not, you could see life just like, whoo, like back in. Amazing. I'm over here sitting here like, Lord, give me a prophetic word, you know, for this or whatever. And Veda walks up and just says, hey, I like your hair. And what she was saying was, is I see you, you're like me. You know what I'm saying? Me and you, we're the same. And that had the power to transform this girl's entire life, or at least transform her day. We're sitting around having meetings, how to evangelize the world. And Jesus is saying, if you would become like a kid, you wouldn't have to meet about how to evangelize the world. You know what I'm saying? We would care about, when you were a kid, you cared about other people. When you're an adult, you see other people as a means to an end. Let's just all be real. I mean, especially in, let me say it like this. Let me just, just really, in the church world, that's, a, that's what we see people as. We see people as a means to an end. What can you do for me? And if you can do for me, we're, we're tight. But the minute that you cease being able to do something for me, I don't got time anymore. We see this in, I mean, think, think about, Matt mentioned this the other day, but think about um, uh, our, our economic system. I mean, the, it's, it's an amazing thing that you can build your own wealth, amazing, in America. But a lot of times the way that we work our way to the top is by tearing people down on the way. Is it not? You know what I'm saying? And listen, and I like, I played football, so I love being competitive. I love, you know, the like sport nature of like business. That's all amazing. However, we don't even think about what we're doing on the way to achieving our works. Because if we're being, if you get down to the root of it, we are so consumed with being in control that we've got to make things happen for ourselves because we're in control, even if it comes at the detriment of somebody else. Kids don't think like that. I mean, in the room right now, I think Veda's the only one in there today. But if there was other kids in there today, is there other kids in there right now? Oh, Susan there. That's right. Yeah, Susan there. Um, that's right. I didn't even see y'all coming today, so it's good to see y'all. Hey. Um, but, okay, so Veda and Sue are in there, and Sue does this too. But it's so fun to watch them work, uh, not work, play. And, uh, like, Veda, she'll be playing, and, she, and Sue will walk up and say, like, hey, is it okay if I play with that toy? And Veda will be like, yeah, sure, here you go. But it's just like this, this mutual sharing of life. You know what I'm saying? It's just effortless. I mean, think about it. When we went to, we went to the, uh, Sue's party, birthday party, um, you could just see all these kids. There were multiple times where a kid would be playing with a toy and another kid would want the toy, and she'd be like, yeah, sure, here you go. And, but it's just this, 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 this idea that we're all on the same team. You know what I'm saying? 
And so Jesus comes into a day and age in a religious system where they were not on the same team, where it was the Pharisees right here. The Sadducees were somewhere in here. They just hated each other. There, there, there was the, uh, the Essenes, which we don't see a lot about them in Scripture, but we know a lot about them because of historical writings. And they were awesome people. And um, the, the writers of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were those people. But anyway, so we have those three groups of people. We have the Romans, who were kind of in everything. And then in Gehenna, the trash dump in Jerusalem, translated hell in the New Testament, um, for the most part, and on the streets and on the outskirts of town, we have the sick, we have the adulterous people, we have the tax collectors, if they you know, got thrown out of the system at some point. We have all the people, the lepers, you know what I mean? All the people in society that uh, the religious system thought were unclean and didn't want, they're all cast out. Jesus comes, and the first place he goes to, and the first things that he does is goes to get all the people the religious system has spent years kicking out. That's why the religious people hated him. It wasn't necessarily what he said. It wasn't necessarily the miracles he performed. It was because he was associating himself with those that they thought were unclean. But by association with Jesus, those who were once considered unclean were becoming more clean than the ones who by the law were clean. So so that's what he said. He says, unless you become like a child... Or he says, no one will ever enter the kingdom realm of heaven unless he becomes like a child. He said, unless you see it like this, unless you think like this, unless your eyes and your mind is like this, you sure will never be able to get into the kingdom, which he says elsewhere, prostitutes and tax collectors were going into before the Pharisees. So so if you're thinking like like a mature adult Pharisee, then when Jesus makes a statement like prostitutes and tax collectors are entering the kingdom before you do, you hear that and say, we got to kill this dude. You know what I'm saying? If you're a kid, you hear that and you say, amen. I'll get in line behind them. Do you see this? I mean, it's, it's, so, it's such a, a, a warping of that mentality, they could not wrap their brains around it. And my fear is, is that we've so ingrained ourselves in postmodern evangelicalism in the West that we aren't able to wrap our minds around it either. That's what, that's what my fear is right now, is that we've so gotten into this works-based, law-based, repeat-this-based mentality that when the Lord starts to bring a revelation of his love, it hits every frequency within our bones the right way. But in our head, we say there's no way that this is truth because if this is truth, all the people we've been kicking out of the church are actually in. So We, we don't disagree with the love of God based on theology. I mean, it's, you know what I'm saying? We disagree with the love of God based on our cultural idea of who should be in and should be not in. That's it. So we'll say things like, yeah, the Lord loves everybody. But what we really think is the Lord loves us. Okay. All right. Let me, um, let me, let me just read two more passages, then I'm done. That's it. I told you I was going to let the Holy Spirit do his thing today. Um, in Matthew 16, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read one verse, and then in Matthew 13, we'll read one verse. In Matthew 16, Jesus 
um, has just fed the 4,000 plus, so 4,000 men, who knows how many people he actually fed. This is the second time he does this. <clears throat> so he feeds the 4,000. They get on a boat, and they start going to the other side of the uh, river. Now, let me, um, Matthew 16, verse 6. Okay, let me read this, okay? So they, they just, he just feeds the thousands, uh, and then they get into a boat, and they're going across the region to the region of Magdala. Now, verse 16, chapter 16, and let me start at verse 1, actually. I'm not going to read just one verse. One day, some of the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees, and those of the Jewish sect known as the, known as the Sadducees, excuse me, approached Jesus, insisting that he proved to them that he was the Messiah. See, you see this thinking? You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you, if you're going to claim you're the Messiah, you better prove it. As if multiplying seven loaves and a couple of fish for thousands wasn't enough proof. You know what I'm saying? So, you, you got to prove it. <clears throat> Lord, um, this is what we do, though. This is, this is how we operate today. They say, show us a supernatural sign from heaven. They demanded it. Verse 2, Jesus answered, You can read the signs of the weather, for you say, red sky at night, sailors delight. This is all cultural. These were sayings they had. Verse 3, and you also say, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. It's kind of funny. Can you imagine hearing Jesus say this? It sounds like a rap, right? You're so adept at forecasting the weather. I want you to hear this right here. He's about to lay this smack down. You're so adept at forecasting the weather by looking at the sky, but you are absolutely clueless in reading the obvious signs of the times. A wicked and wayward generation always asks for a sign, but the only sign I provide for you will be the sign of Jonah the prophet. And then he turned away and left. Man, I could, I'm not going to teach this. I could teach four messages on just that verse. Jonah, who was Jonah? The one that the Lord said, go here. He didn't do it. And then the sto- as the story goes, he got into the belly of a whale three days, ended up going to do it. Um, and so what he's saying is, is a wicked and wayward generation, they always ask for signs. Who is, now, who is the wicked and wayward generation he's talking about? Let's just all be clear. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, we, we, if I ask you today, well, who is, who is the wicked ones in our society? You would say the druggies and, you know, all those other people. Jesus defined the wicked ones as the religious posers. That, see, that should convict the crud out of us. Jesus says, I'm not coming to call the, the, the ones who were obviously sick. I'm not calling them wicked. I'm calling you wicked because you think you're healthy and you're more sick than they are. So, then he turned away and left. Later, as Jesus and his disciples crossed over to the other side of the lake. Now, I want you to hear this in the disciples, okay? Remember, he just multiplied the bread. Just did this, okay? So, as they're traveling over across the the lake of Galilee, I think I said river earlier, I meant lake. The disciples realized that they had forgotten to bring loaves of bread. So, Jesus spoke up, and he said... Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Thinking Jesus was scolding them over not bringing bread. Lord, this is so huge. They whispered among themselves, knowing their thoughts. Jesus said to them, why have or you have such little faith? Why are you arguing with one another about having no bread? 
Now, he just says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they immediately respond in a way that the Pharisees and Sadducees would. They're mad at each other because they didn't bring bread. See there, guys, like Jesus just said, beware of the yeast. John, why didn't you bring the bread? My Lord, like you have one job or whatever. You know, I would love to hear what their conversation would have been like. So he says, why do you have such little faith? Why are you arguing with one, one another about having a bread? Are you so slow to understand? Have you forgotten the miracle just now of feeding the 5,000 families and how each of you ended up with a basket full of fra- fag- fragments and how seven loaves of bread fed 4,000 families with baskets left over? Don't you understand? I'm not talking about bread. I'm warning you to avoid the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they realized, they finally realized, that he wasn't talking about the yeast found in bread, but the error of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of the yeast. What is yeast? I'm about to read this to you, and then I'm done. What is yeast? It's that little, little, tiny bit of stuff that is insignificant in the beginning, that when it's worked into an entire batch of dough, affects the whole thing. So Jesus is saying, do not let this much of the thinking of the Pharisees get in you. Because it may not seem like a lot, but over time and down your legacy, it's going to affect the entire way you see everything. Jesus, he says, he doesn't say, you know, y'all, y'all watch out and make sure you get most of the stuff the Pharisees teach. Make sure you throw out most of that stuff. He says, you better not let this much of what they teach within you because ultimately it'll affect the whole batch. A little compromise in one generation is the next generation's captivity. Now, he uses this language again. Matt, you can come up here, and then I'm almost done. Shortest message I've ever taught. Um, I should have preached this message on Friday. They told me to preach 30 minutes, and somebody told me I went an hour. So um, I can't confirm or deny that, but I tried. Uh, Matthew 13. Now, after, after hearing this about the Pharisees and the yeast, I want you to hear what Jesus calls the kingdom. Okay. Let me start at verse 31. Jesus taught them another parable and said, Heaven's kingdom realm can be compared to the tiny mustard seed that a man takes and plants in his field. Although the smallest of all seeds, it eventually grows into the greatest of garden plants, becoming a tree for birds to come and build their nest in its branches. Now I want you to hear this. Then he taught them another parable. Heaven's kingdom realm can be compared to yeast that a woman takes and blends into three measures of flour and then waits until the dough rises. The Lord right now, right now, I feel like is calling us into a season where our yeast is about to begin to permeate the whole of the church. And I do not think that's too grand. I think I'm thinking too little. When, when I say this all the time, when 500 years ago, Martin Luther writes out 99 theses, goes to the door at Wittenberg and the Catholic Church and nails them to the door, in his mind, insignificant, he's probably going to die. If we're all being real, he, he assumed he's probably going to die. But him making the decision to nail those 99 theses to that door permeated the whole of the culture until it produced us. 
Now, I don't agree with everything Martin Luther believed, but I do agree with the fervor that he had to make sure that we did not get in by way of works. So, so that little bit of yeast eventually permeated the whole of the church. Now, I believe where we are right now is we have allowed in the American, I can only speak to the American church, we have allowed the yeast of the Pharisee to be intertwined and worked in in a way that we didn't even see when it happened that has now affected the whole batch. Because no matter what denomination you're in, no matter what background you come from, we can all agree that there is something in our background that says you get in by what you do. No matter where you come from, no matter what it is. And that goes blatantly against all of this, which says you couldn't get in with your works if you were perfect. If you were perfect, it wouldn't qualify you for this. You're only qualified for this because of the cross. That's it. You're not holy because you're perfect. You're holy because he said it is finished, period. You live in holiness not to earn your way into an identity of holy. You live in holiness because he called you holy, right? You become like a child, not by way of working your way back down to being like a child. You become like a child because you start to live in the reality that the cross bought you, which is for you to be born again, for you to get another shot at removing the religion from your mindset and living in who you really are, which is untainted, uncontrolled, wild and free trust in Abba. That's it. When we take Veda to the, to the you know, uh, where do we, t- to the dentist. I'm just trying to find the best example. When we take her to the dentist, she does not want to go to the dentist. She hates, actually, she kind of likes it now. But the first time we took her, she, she wasn't a huge fan of going to the dentist. But as her dad and as her mom, we knew her teeth are going to rot out if we don't take her to the dentist. Right? So we did something that she didn't even like so it would produce her health. But even though she didn't want to go, and even though she would prefer to stay home, she got in the car, rode to the dentist, went through the appointment, and came back home with us without asking a question. It was something she didn't want to do, but she so trusted Jordan and I that she did it anyway. And it produced her health. We don't have this view of God. We have this view of God that if, if we're all being honest, and I know y'all are sick of me hearing, talk about, me, hearing me talk about works, but we got this view of God on a even if it's a molecular, tiny, insignificant level. We got this view of God that our relationship is affected by what we do. And so we're always on this hamster wheel of running and running and running and running and running and running and running because if we ever stop, the whole thing stops. And I believe Yahweh is saying, it's time to be a kid again. It's time for you to get to the place where you care about two things in life. You care about trusting me and you care about having fun. That's it. What, I wrote this in my book. What, what does Veda, my daughter, what, what does she worry about in life? She worries about two things. What is she going to play? You know what I mean? Having fun and trusting mom and dad for everything else. That's it. And I don't want you to hear me and say, like, oh, you're saying we shouldn't do anything. I'm not talking about works. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking about the mindset that judges God's trustworthiness based on what you're walking through. Well, Lord, you gave me this amazing job, so I, 
man, I trust you. Or I just lost this job. I thought I was going to be out the rest of my life. God, I don't, man, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. God never changed. Our situations changed. But in 10 years, you're going to look back and say, thank God my situation changed. So because we can't see three feet in front of us, all we really have the capability of doing is trusting. I, and I, I wrote, I, I, if you haven't gotten the book, let me know. If you don't have the money for it, I'll just give it to you. But I want you, like, because this is huge. I wrote this in it extensively in there. But when we think we take control of our lives, we think that we're creating another path for our life to go down. And we're not. There's one path, and it's his. When you take control, you don't start moseying yourself down another path of endless amounts of paths. When you take control, you start falling into an abyss of nothing. Because there's one path. You're either on the right path or you're falling into a pit of absolute nothingness. But that's it. And that's why when you take control, you can travel as far down as you want down that pit. And when you get to the bottom, you find yourself what? Still broken, still confused, still empty, having no clue what your life is supposed to be about. How do we know this? Because we see superstars that are committing suicide at crazy rates. We see mega church pastors that are committing suicide at crazy rates. We see people who have all the money in the world. Jeff Bezos is doing everything he can to fulfill himself because he's not fulfilled. And he's got more money than probably the United States government. We All of us got more money than the United States government because we're you know, $20 million in debt. But so here or there. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's this constant need to feel, to feel, to feel, to feel, to feel, to feel. And we think we're doing good because we're working. Am I right? Like, like this is what I have a hard time resting. I feel bad for resting. I don't know if any of y'all like me. I'll sit down to watch a football game yesterday, and I felt bad for watching a football game. Because in my mind... I'm letting something down if I'm not doing. It, that's how ingrained in my thinking it is. And I had to force myself to say, Abba's got everything. It's okay. So it's re, I'm retraining myself to think like this. But let me tell y'all something. Just a testimony, then we'll pray. Y'all, y'all know I've struggled with fear of man my whole life. And I know a lot of you struggle with the same thing. But <clears throat> my whole life, I've seen, and even since we started this church, I've seen a, this, this piece of me still sees the success of this church based on what I do. It used to be this much, and it's gotten all the way down to this much. But everything in me says, if I don't perform, if I don't perform, everything in this little piece, if I don't perform, this thing doesn't make it, essentially. You know what I'm saying? And by perform, I mean do my best, make sure I'm meeting with the right amount of people, make sure I'm not forgetting to text people, make sure all this stuff. And this week, the Lord started downloading this revelation of becoming a child. And I, I pro- I've never been more free of fear of man in my life because I sat back and realized, you know what? This ain't about me. This church is not about me. I might be the one preaching most of the time. This church is not about me. It's about you and it's about him. And I get to be included in that, but this is not about me. And if it's not about me, it can't fail because of me. But, but there is stuff this week that I said no to I would have never said no to three weeks ago. And the reason I said no to it is because I've been dead tired this week because I've been doing too much. 
know what I'm saying? And it, it, I know this seems, this is, this is the big stuff that once it's worked into how we think is going to permeate the whole of our culture. It, if everybody in our culture, in the church, let's start with the church. If everybody in the church had minds like kids, then you start releasing the word about the love of God. It is absolutely effortless to receive. That makes sense. You know what I'm saying? But if everybody is on this pedestal, we got this thing figured out because this is how I grew up. Then you start preaching something so simple as the love of God. And it's like, no, nope, that, don't, that don't fit my predestination theology. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, brother, well, brother that, doesn't, that doesn't fit the way I came into salvation. Exactly. Unless you become like a child, you'll never enter in. So I think a lot of people have repeated a prayer to become adult Christians and never got born again. Your salvation should have been your, and my, my salvation should have been my freedom from the show, from the performance and from the mask. And for a lot of us, if we're being honest, my salvation was entrance into a performance and a show and a mask like I never had before. When I got saved, it was not, you're free. When I got saved, it was like, now here's a list. You better make sure you keep this. And we called it freedom. I was more free. I mean, before this, I was more free lost than I was saved. Because at least when I was lost, I didn't have to pretend. Some of y'all don't know that life. Some of y'all don't know that you know that life. But I'm telling y'all, it is a, being in a, a, Pentecostal charismatic environment will make you be the biggest pretender on planet earth because everybody else is pretenders and the only way you make it to the top of that denomination is to be the best pretender that's not a knock it's reality it should be convicting if anybody's watching this but now the Lord's bringing us into a place where like you and I I don't I don't have to to let me say it like this I don't have to watch what I say in terms of being perfect I could be me you know what I'm saying? And you can be you. And as we become to be authentic, as we become authentic children of God, and in our minds become like childs, like children, not childs, as we become like children, also we're going to find a community begin to happen that, that we have never even dreamed because it's going to be solely based on what I've been saying for months, the fact that we actually want you and you, 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 and you to be here because we've had our thinking transformed. It's not we want people like us here. It's we want everybody here. And we don't want everybody here because we want to be the biggest church in town. We want everybody here because we have found gold in a field that we've sold everything to buy the field for so that we could have the gold out of it. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. And what I want us to do this week, because I'm not going to be here next Sunday, um, but it's the last Sunday I won't be here for the rest of the year. And um, we're going to the beach, and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing service. So y'all don't miss just because I'm not here. I mean, I, like, I kid y'all not. If we ever become that church that when I'm not here, everybody decides to stay home and watch online, I, you, you've never seen the wrath of God like you're going to see when I come back. But, you know what I'm saying? And, I, I, like, I love y'all, but that ain't, that ain't what we do. If you're here for me, good Lord, like, you, you, you got to find something more important. You know what I'm saying? I am not worth you coming every Sunday to see. I'm just not. I mean, I'm, I'm worth it. In the, you know, I'm not judging my worth. You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, is that y'all ain't here for me. You're here for him. I just happen to be the one with the mic. But I'm not going to be here next Sunday. But what I want us to do this week, and we'll have to, I'll be here Tuesday night, 
is for us to reimagine, like, what are the little pieces in my life? What are the little pieces, even in our church, is what I'm asking, that we have, through experience or through what somebody else is doing or through anything but pure revelation from the Lord, instilled in how we think that needs to be reverted back to like it was in the beginning. Like what, what do you view God like if you're just being completely honest? Like not the churchy showy self, but if you're being your real authentic self, where in your life have you questioned the Lord because of what you have walked through and it has produced something in you that says he's not trustworthy, he's not faithful. Of course, you can't say that out loud because we're in the South. But somewhere on the inside of you, you say, I don't know if I can trust him because of what I've walked through. That's big stuff. That's not little stuff. That's huge stuff that your kids are going to live out and your grandkids are going to live out if you don't take care of. And if I don't, if I don't take care of fear of man right now, my daughter's going to be in the same junk when she gets older. So I've got a responsibility to take care of it now so that as she is raised up, she's going to be free of fear of man because dad took care of it. She's never going to know what that means. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll be out. We're going to take up offering, and then we'll be out. Lord, first, I thank you that you allowed my voice to make it through this. So that was huge. Thank you. I was a little worried about it, but thank you for that. Um, but, but on a serious note, I, I thank you, Lord, that you were just, um, you're bringing a, I just feel a freedom here in this family. You've so tight-knit this group of people. It doesn't mean that it's like an exclusive group of people. Pe- different new um, identities and voices have come into this thing over the past year that have added so much to what you're doing. There's people that aren't here today because of doing stuff on behalf of what you're doing here, other places that are just unbelievable witnesses to the family that you're growing out of Columbia, South Carolina here. But I believe what is happening in us is so huge, yet it is so small that if we're not careful, we're gonna miss it. And it's, you're teaching us about your love, but the reason you're teaching us about your love is so that we can be convinced it's okay to be kids again. If I'm convinced that you love me, I can be convinced to trust you. But if I think part of you just tolerates me, there's no way I would ever trust you. So these are the things that you're doing. So Lord, I pray that this week that you would bring up the little cracks in the foundation. Show us where, to use what I used earlier, where we have used 16-inch rebar, where we should have used 24-inch. I mean, seriously, show, show us the places in us where we stopped at the surface level that we were actually designed to go deep in. And send us there. And let our freedom, let our freedom dare every other person around us to believe that they could be free too. Let our freedom be permission. Let our childlikeness be permission for them. Lord, we honor you in this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.